You want to know why America is so politically divided? Follow the science. I'm Scott Ott with Bill Whittle and Stephen Green, and this episode of Right Angles brought to you by the members at BillWhittle.com. And gentlemen, I was listening to an interview on a public radio program called Think, uh, which I listen to from time to time just to remind my brain to do so. And uh, I'm not saying the program helps. I'm just saying that word occasionally sparks something. Um, and they were interviewing a, a guy who recently wrote a column in the Washington Post. His name is Joel Achenbach. And the column was under the headline, Science is Revealing Why American Politics Are So Intensely Polarized. And one of the things he said during the Think interview was that back in the 1950s, some academics were being uh, were expressing concern that the two parties in the United States were so similar uh, that uh, as to be virtually identical, and that you know during the sort of Eisenhower years they had become uh, almost homogeneous. And there were no real differences. And so, you know, what kind of a democracy or republic do you have when you don't really have any legitimate debate? Um, he said, now, you know, for, for good or ill, we've overcome that problem. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> however, he said he doesn't think that primarily the problem between the parties is one of policy substance, but rather one of feeling. And he brings in a lot of what, you know, scientists call evolutionary psychology into it. Um, but here's a quote from a guy who's an expert, so-called in this, from Johns Hopkins University, who's written a paper about this. He said, it's polarization that's based on our feelings for each other, not based on extremely divergent policy preferences. Um, and basically he's saying that evolutionary psychology developed due to the importance of identifying rivals or competitors for resources. So I guess they're picturing us out there wandering the plains, uh, trying to fight over scraps of meat. And uh, we need to be able to quickly identify who our friends are and who our foes are. And the evolution of cooperation, Steve Green, required uh, what one Yale professor called outgroup hatred meaning you had to hate the other guy because you always had to be attuned to defend against his predations on your stuff. Uh, Steve, in a sense, haven't we gotten to an age where both political parties want us to believe that there's essentially a zero-sum game when it comes to uh, political outcomes and that political operatives really exploit this uh, tendency in us, and they, they're basically trying to leverage and encourage this idea that we must have a strong identity group and we must hate the outgroup. Yeah, uh, tribalism, collectivism, whatever version of collectivism you, you, you want to call it, uh, has, has made a roaring comeback in recent decades. Or maybe it's, I should say it's a slow, slow rolling comeback that's, that's, gotten to the point now where you, you, you just can't sweep it under the rug anymore. Um, I mean, I just, it, it, it seems like every group out there, even, even the ones I, I like and kind of belong to, although I've never been much of a joiner, every one of them has to have their, uh, oh, who is the object of the two minutes hate in, uh, in 1984? Uh, was it Goldberg, oh, Goldstein? Gold, Goldstein. Goldstein. It seems like every every group out there has their Goldstein, and it's not a daily two minutes hate. It's uh, it's a lot more than that. It's like two minutes every hour, guaranteed. If you spend any time on social media reading politics, like I uh, 
like I do. And it's just, it's, it's tiresome. But, you know, there is a solution to this. Uh, 250 years ago or so, we had a very serious group of people who thought very seriously about the problem of, of, of democracy, the problem of a republic, which is it had only been tried before in, in city-states, really, uh, fairly small, fairly alike groups of people. And even then, it typically turned into a disaster with uh, given enough time or given a big enough crisis. You look at uh, what Athens did to itself, and the, these, these are the problems that the founders of this country uh, thought about very, very hard. Um, nothing had been tried on this scale before. That's why they called it the, the, the American experiment. Could, could you have four or five million people in, in 13 very different states make a single union and, and make it work. And the answer they came up with was federalism. You do what, what works for you in, in New Hampshire, and uh, uh, New York isn't very far away, but boy, you've got a completely different situation there. That's a big state. You've got a big city and all that, uh, which is not at all the same as, as uh, either the Carolinas or, or Virginia. And federalism was, was the answer to that problem. Each of the states could could do a whole you-do-you thing, and on a very few issues, national defense, currency, trade, uh, the federal government was was supreme, and that was the law of the land, and, and that was that. The states and localities were, were free to go their own way. Well, now Washington is a colossus, and uh, thanks to some questionable Supreme Court decisions and a whole lot of laws and regulations, there really isn't anything that somebody with the, le- with the, with, with the right lever in Washington can't try and force people to do or, or take away from them or, or stop them from doing, which means we are fighting more and more over less and less because the problem isn't uh, particular policy. It's who has those hands on those levers and why do those levers even exist? They're really not supposed to. Bill Whittle, um, this is uh, this is another quote from this article that I read. Uh, he says we're predisposed to pay attention to conflict because we might be in danger. So he's talking again from sort of an evolutionary psychology perspective on things where more primitive groups of humans, uh, you know, and I say that with arrogance, assuming that I'm highly advanced, but more primitive groups of humans had to stay finally attuned to danger. And so it's much, for us, conflict is, is ever present because we're constantly looking for threats. And he uses the example, he says, basically, you know, we don't snap our heads around to look at a beautiful flower. Uh, but if we hear a stick break when we're out in the wilderness, we snap our heads around looking for a predator. Um, you know, that's, we're attuned to that. And Bill, um, it seems to me that there may be something to this idea that the science of this basically is being, is, is understood by the pundits and politicians and their operatives who plan their campaigns to a much higher extent than it is to the average American. And we may be unwittingly used as pawns because they get our psychological bent and we don't. And so we just behave in patterned ways and they know how to push the buttons. Well, there's a lot of really interesting things to unpack here. So first of all, on your, on your last point, you know, Big tech monitors every keystroke we make and everything we do. And it's tempting for us to think, wow, they're listening to, they're reading my emails. They're not reading your emails. They're reading hundreds of millions of emails. They don't care about you. You are one more piece of data in an enormous stream of data. 
and they are they are triangulating their policies based upon the feedback that they're getting from things like comment sections in in YouTube things and so on and so forth. They're not interested in you. They're interested in what what people like you are doing and where they're trending. Now, if the the, the point of this article is that the psychology of the people of the two parties is different, there's no question about that because the brains of the two parties are different. There's been many uh, supported research that shows that there's a difference in the size of the brain between uh, people who describe themselves as extremely conservative versus extremely progressive, and that part of the brain is called the amygdala. And the amygdala is it's it's more developed in conservatives. Liberals say, well, that's because the amygdala is the fear center and conservatives do nothing but live in fear and paranoia. But the amygdala's job is to alert you to threats. The amygdala is the part of you that reminds you what a threat is. So you mentioned you don't turn snap your head at a flower, but you do snap your head and look around when you hear a sharp noise behind you. Well, the amygdala learns that if, if you hear rustling in the bushes behind you and you get pounced on by a leopard and you end up surviving the experience, next time you hear rustling in the bushes, you don't have to figure out what it is. You don't have to stand. Well, did I hear? Instantly, you know, you know, which parenthetically, by the way, that twig snap thing is so deep in our biology that they often put that in horror movies when the when the villain strikes, they'll put it just just because it. It brings us up. So, so there's that biological difference. The second thing is, is that one of the reasons we're so more, much more polarized now is because politics has intruded into everything. When they were talking a bit disdainfully about how there was virtually no distinction between Republicans and Democrats in the 50s and so on, it's because the discussions about politics in the 50s were about, do we want an 11% um, tax on this or do we want a 7% tax on this? Politics had not intruded into our into our locker rooms. It hadn't intruded into our bedrooms. It hadn't intruded into our private lives. It wasn't trying to tell us what we could do or couldn't do. It wasn't trying to control and regulate everything we do. At the time, Washington was functioning more or less as it was supposed to, which is to run the legitimate federal business of the government. And it's only when it's only when the the government began intruding into people's personal lives that we began to develop this kind of hatred because nobody's going to hate some if look if your neighbor's in favor of a four percent tariff and you're in, and you're in favor of an eight percent tariff that's not the kind of thing you go burn the guy's house down for right but if he's determined that his that his son who's you know 220 pounds is going to wrestle your daughter because of the political differences that now you've got now you got fighting words so there's that and the final thing i think scott is and we don't pay enough attention to this is that is that there are tremendous outside forces acting on our society. Every time that you talk about communist infiltration and influence on the society, you are automatically mocked as a paranoid and a lunatic. But what's interesting about history is, is that all of the people like Alger Hiss and, and all the rest of them who conservatives were mocked for calling communists turned out to be communists, the Rosenbergs, all of that. There, there is a there is a philosophy in the world called collectivism that is antithetical to the principles of individualism that the United States are founded on. And we are the last barrier to worldwide collectivism. And so it is in the interest of collectivists like the Russians and the Chinese and many others to destroy this society. This society is so fundamentally strong that we've been able to weather this for since it started in the 60s and at least above board. And so what you do is you, 
you have to turn people against themselves. Get the father out of the household, destroy the family, that's the first thing, but turn you against your neighbor. And a term I've often used for this is, the reason it's a false premise, this division, I, I call it kind of a psychological Rubik's Cube. And what I mean by that is, if, I, if I've got somebody and I'm talking to them and I'm, a, and I'm a conservative and they're a liberal, then we're at each other's throats because I know all the horrible things they believe in and they know all the horrible things that I believe in and I want to kill that person and they want to strangle me and so on. And then if you take the Rubik's Cube and twist it and you take that exact same individual and put us at a football game and we're both Florida Gator fans and, and, and now they were, we're playing against Florida State, all of a sudden, all of those all of those differences and all of those impulses disappear now when we beat the snot out of these useless vagabonds from that city up north which has been a while by the way uh we now we're brothers now we're embracing and hugging each other and you know and and and, and cheering and so 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 these differences are manufactured and when you take all of these things together the biological difference the, the intrusion into everyday life of politics, and especially the subversion of the country, you end up with a, with a, a, and this is the good news, you end up with a fundamentally false sense of how bad things are because you're told all the time about race conflicts and, and bitterness and bigotry and, and, and white privilege and, and, and all of it. And then, then you'll go to the Seven Eleven. You'll hold the door for a black man. He'll say, "Hey, thanks, man." You know, and, and he'll and, and he'll you know he'll do something for you. And and it's just not there, Scott. It's not there. So, yeah, I think I'm done now. <laughs> well, I, this this uh, interview that I heard briefly on uh, on the NPR show, Think, and then the follow up of reading the article by Joel Achenbach in the Washington Post uh, made me think that. If we only think in terms of group rivalries and outgroup hatred, we become vulnerable to manipulation of our feelings. And no matter how um, rational I consider myself, there is an emotional response that precedes rationality involuntarily. Uh, when something happens to you or someone says something, you can experience an immediate feeling of hate. Uh, and or or of hurt rather is probably a better say, a better way to say it an immediate feeling of hurt um, before you get around to going oh wait a minute now if I rationally think about this this is what's going on here and there's no reason for me to feel hurt and this person was just having a bad day or whatever uh, but if if we are so fine tuned to immediately be able to identify the guys in the other jerseys. And if we are such uh, so in league with the people who are wearing our color jersey that we know that no matter what that other guy does, we've got to not like it. Uh, and in fact, it would be very helpful if we, we were outraged at it. Uh, then, uh, then we suspend ever getting around to the rationality part. Our rational judgment uh, we shuts down questions. It, it, we use our tribalism instead of our minds and I think we scuttle this experiment in human liberty, which was never designed for uniformity of thought or homogeneity of political ideology. It was designed for civil dialogue and debate. 
It was designed for people to be able to come together in the public square and in their legislatures and to have discussions about important issues that mean something without having to demonize the other side in order to, to win. In my view, this demonization, um, this, this alienation of the other side, this outgroup hatred is, is a kick in the groin in the middle of a boxing match. It is because you think you're not going to win the fight and so you have to do something to cripple the other guy rather than following your skill and your ability and trying to win the argument. In any case, I think there is a, a real place for outgroup hatred, and I understand it uh, pretty thoroughly, but the, the outgroup that we should hate are not the people in the other party. The outgroup that we should hate are the people who are profiting and growing in power thanks to their ability to divide the rest of us. For Bill Whittle and Stephen Green, I'm Scott Ott. Thanks to the members at BillWhittle.com for making Right Angle possible.